Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Good morning, Gary. Hey, good morning, Mike. And welcome to our listeners. Uh, we've got a terrific program today. We have Vivian Schiller, the executive director of the Aspen Institute. She heads up programs associated with media technology and cybersecurity. So that's going to be a great conversation. Yeah, former colleague of mine, just really super smart. That's great. That's great. But before we go there, let's touch on some news. What's been interesting, there's kind of been a spate of articles since the election anticipating who Joe Biden might select for his cabinet and for other positions. And one of the things that caught my eye was a piece in the Washington Post by a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, Stephen Perlstein. And I might add, Perlstein used to work in democratic politics. I think he was the chief of staff to Democratic Congressman Michael Harrington, who was a liberal from Massachusetts years ago, and then also was chief of staff to U.S. Senator John Durkin. What he did is he wrote a piece that was related to a letter that went out from 50 different liberal organizations to President-elect Biden saying that his administration should have a ban on hiring anyone, anyone associated with corporations. There was also some language about lobbyists and whatnot, but essentially they don't want executives with Mm -hmm. a business background because, as they said, those people would be incapable of working in the service of the general welfare. Similarly, in another article on this same topic written by a couple of different individuals and kind of led by Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York Times, it suggested that the administration actually did bar executives from the Biden administration who had worked in business. It actually might unduly eliminate a lot of very talented, diverse individuals. You and I have both been around government what do you kind of make of this? Is, is this a problem or are these organizations right? Well, well Mike, I, I, from personal experience and having worked both in government and business, this is absolutely wrong. My personal experience was I once had an editor of a large newspaper tell me that I was a sellout because I had gone from government to business. I'd gone mm-hmm. from working for the governor of New York to working for GE. And my response was, am I in some kind of personal penalty box forever because I happen to have government experience? So I was going the other way. In both cases, it's wrong. Look, the problem that we've had in government, from my perspective, is we don't have the best and brightest, right? um, regardless of background, working for government. And I would say, secondly, this comes at a time when business is being heavily relied upon to solve some big social economic challenges, there are so many people in business who respect the rule of law, who have a view on you know, helping stakeholders to, to benefit both at a government level and a business level. I think this would be a disappointing move by the Biden administration if they did it. They would be cutting off their nose to spite their face. And of course you vet people, 
to see if they're going to be objective, if they're going to be, if they're qualified. But certainly, look, I'm going to say something controversial here. If Jamie Dimon wanted to be Treasury Secretary, maybe you say yes. Who knows the global financial system better than he does? Well, that's the thing, right? It's like part of government is to regulate and to have an understanding of the broader world. Don't you want people who've lived in that world, who understand that world, that have insights that might make you actually more effective? It's a shame to think that we now live in a world where we go to the point of saying, you know, we don't want people who are informed. We only want people who had a narrow experience in life, either just working in government or just working in government and NGOs. And that that somehow is going to produce better results is unfathomable. Yeah, and it, it, it creates, Mike, you're sort of, you sort of become a second-class citizen. In other yeah. words, right, you're creating a set of people who are eligible to be in government and people who are not. And, and that is wrong. That could be considered, I would consider it un-American. Because I know, you, you and I both know thousands of people in business who would be fantastic civil servants. Well, and the thing is, is, is we have had various people that have served in you know, various cabinet level offices that have come out of the business community. Yeah, some of them haven't been great. Some of them have been great. And the other interesting thing is even NGOs have people who worked in the business world who <laughs> now are working in those spaces and have been very, very yeah. successful. I mean, the current head of World Wildlife Fund in the U.S., I think he, he went to Harvard Business School and then yeah. worked for Gillette you know, before he worked for the Nature Conservancy and then came over to work for World Wildlife Fund. So the thought that somehow someone out of the business world isn't going to have the right calibration, the right sensitivity, the, the, the best of knowledge to help solve problems, I think is wrongheaded. Exactly. I'm with you. Thinking about wrongheaded, <laughs> um, <laughs> I do want to. That's our that's our best segue we've ever had, Mike. Right there. <laughs> so Rudy Giuliani held a news conference this past week during which he sought to support the, the president's continued baseless claim they had been defrauded in the election, and he was using some wild speculation to say the election was stolen by George Soros and some Venezuelan company, all of which is course, not true. But these things got so heated that Giuliani appeared to be dripping sweat and black hair dyed down his cheeks from right. his temples. It prompted uh, late night comic Stephen Colbert to quit. Remind me, is it a good sign when your lawyer starts melting? Now, <laughs> in fairness to Rudy, you know, Rudy may have had to fire the advanced guy who set up the press conference two weeks ago at what was the Four Seasons, but not the hotel, Four Seasons, the total landscaping parking lot. And I believe you you purchased a t-shirt or a sweatshirt oh, a, from there, it's Gary. It's a beautiful thing. But how this happened, I don't know. New York media, national late night show hosts have had some fun with it. They've talked to hairdressers on their opinion. But for the record, what I found really interesting was just for men, actually put out a tweet the day of the press conference 
that stated, someone tell Mr. Giuliani, we've been keeping high profile moments drip free for more than 40 years. <laughs> Gary, does Rudy need a new advanced guy? And what do you think of Just For Men using this as a brandable? I, I don't agree with what's happened with Rudy in recent years and, and the things he said and done, but I felt bad for him. You know, you can just, that flop sweat moment, you know, that it just awful. And even some of the people I've talked to felt the same way, who really disdain what he's been doing since the election, particularly. I love the Just For Men moment. And by the way, Mike, I should say, I have no right to talk about anybody's hair. Okay. <laughs> I don't think either one of us does. <laughs> you know, so if any, the most folks who are listening who know me know what I'm talking about. I love the Just For Men moment. And let's, let's, let's just say that Gary is streamlined. Yes, I'm very, I'm, when I run, when I bike, not Aerodynamic. <laughs> Aerodynamic. But look, you and I have done advanced work, right? You know, yeah. it's really important. And, you know, I worked with an executive who wanted, wanted the rooms refrigerator cold, you know, that kind of thing. And I always remember on advanced work when Sarah Palin, who was running for vice president, was pardoning a turkey up in Alaska. And behind her was a guy killing turkeys. <laughs> oh, yeah. In I the remember that. In the camera shot. So, yes, Rudy does need a new advanced person. More <laughs> importantly, I hope Rudy exits stage left and, and lets this transition get, get underway. <laughs> now, another thing, when I start thinking about brands, I start thinking about this time of year, U.S. Thanksgiving is traditionally followed not only by leftovers, but also followed by kind of the kickoff for the holiday shopping season. And that begins normally with Black Friday, but it's unique and different this year, I think, because of COVID-19. Our friends at Morning Consult, the polling firm, have done some surveys on why this holiday season might be a little different. And what they came up with is that 46% of the U.S. population are worried about their jobs, the job security, because of the resurgence of the pandemic. They also found out that 58% of shoppers are worried about their finances as the holidays approach. And that 72% of Americans say, you know, they're not going to be buying the big ticket items that they might have bought in years past, and even sharp shoppers in Europe say they expect to spend less on gifts this year than last. I've not seen any real holiday advertising as yet. I don't know if you have, but Gary, this has to be a tough environment for marketers. It certainly is a tough environment for communicators. If you're advising clients in, in this market, how would you suggest they navigate their messaging in the current pandemic environment? Can one be too joyful in the midst of the pandemic? And how do you hawk products and services given people's worries? So here's what I would say, Mike. I've never done consumer product marketing, but here's two things I would do this holiday season if I were a marketer. Mm -hmm. I would look at those lines for food in Texas. I don't know if you saw the photos of that. Mm -hmm. where cars were lined up, you know, just innumerable cars lined up for food at a food bank, a food giveaway. So clearly that is a sort of visualization of what Morning Consult is seeing here about P 
people being worried about their finances, two things I would do. I would suggest giving to your local charity, mm-hmm. whether it's a food bank, you know, or whether it's a, a shelter of some kind for women or for homeless people. If I were a brand, I would that would be the centerpiece. And sometimes, you know, if you're Walmart, you can give gift cards, kill two birds with one stone. And I would also encourage online shopping. So Which I think is going to happen anyway, right? Right. And people feel concerned about the pandemic. I mean, you would think they would not be out shopping right. in the malls and big department stores like well, they might otherwise. You, you would think they would also be not holding big motorcycle rallies. This in is the true. Middle of a pandemic. But the centerpiece of it has to be you know, we're sort of at this in the United States, particularly, I'm hoping a fresh start, Yeah. you know, um, with the election results about the importance of community, of generosity and respect. And certainly that would be the centerpiece of my campaign if I were working in, in one of these companies right now. Yeah, I think it, there's a there's a careful balance, right? I think on on one level, yeah, you look for opportunities to give and to underscore that your brand is part of this greater community. And then you look for expressions of community that aren't just lots of people huddled together. Yeah. I also do think, though, that there is some element in the human spirit that even in the darkest moments wants some element of joy. And as a consequence, I actually expect that we'll see some ads that use old familiar tunes, maybe from you know, the 60s and 70s. Yeah. My guess is we'll see things that are more brand-oriented ads as opposed to product ads that touch both this sense of giving and taking care of humanity. And yet there may also be things that where people are just breaking out and dance and song. Yeah. Because I do think that we kind of yearn for those moments and something that even, you know, spiritually, and, and I don't mean this from a religious aspect, but something that up, uplifts the human spirit is is kind of what we all need and something that actually unifies us and brings us together, exactly. at least virtually, is something that we all desire. So speaking of that uh, you can help me out here, Mike. So what is it that you want from Santa this year? What do I want from Santa? Well, you know, I've spent a lot of time this last year in Calgary, Canada, working away, sometimes with very few colleagues in the office. So what I am hoping for most is a hug from my wife, <laughs> where we will be together Good for, for more than a week's time. Yeah. And we're going to get that from, from Christmas to New Year's. So. That is beautiful. Very nicely said. How about you? Well, listen, I'll go back to one of our earlier topics. I would love if Santa would bring me some hair. You know? <laughs> I'm with you there. <laughs> you know, but I'd take a hug, you know, we all at this time of year. This year of all, I'd love a hug from not only my wife, but the kids and yeah. all the special ones. That would be nice rather than a fist bump. So uh... <laughs> that's great, Gary. Now let's go to our guest. Our guest today on the crux is Vivian Schiller, executive director of the Aspen Institute 
where she heads up programs around media, technology, and cybersecurity. Over the last 30 years, Vivian has held executive roles at some of the most respected media organizations in the world. She has been president and CEO of NPR, global chair of news at Twitter, general manager of NewYorkTimes.com, chief digital officer of NBC News, chief of the Discovery Times channel, and head of CNN documentary and long form division. Documentaries and series produced under her direction earned multiple honors, including three Peabody Awards, four Alfred I. DuPont Columbia University Awards, and dozens of Emmys. Vivian, welcome to the Crux. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That is really an amazing resume. And, and you know you're good when you can just say dozens of Emmys, right? You don't enumerate. <laughs> you just say dozens. I'll well, get that there part's someday. kind of ancient history, but yeah. <laughs> I'll get there someday. So we want to talk about your work at Aspen, but I want to start. You said in an interview, you try to make clear to the public the ways that news, media, and technology impact our lives and also the responsibility of public and private institutions to be responsible stewards of these powerful tools. How does that translate into your day-to-day -day work? Yeah, so, you know, the thing is that we need to look at all forms of media and communication out of silos and look at them in a more holistic level. So the traditional mainstream media, the social media platforms, and all the other ways we communicate feed off, off each other and they are all mutually reinforcing or sometimes mutually undermining. So our work at Aspen is really about trying to connect those dots and help bring together policymakers at the local, state, and federal government level with private industry, with civic organizations to align ourselves around a path forward to solve some of the most vexing issues of our time across media and technology. And Vivian, could you, for example, what's, what would be one of your goals at Aspen? If you could solve a problem today, what would be at the top of your agenda? Well, I would love to find a way to put evidence-based reality back front and center for most Americans in terms of the kind of information that they consume, create and share. Unfortunately, we've seen a lot of damage that's happened over the last number of years and accelerating in terms of the kind of mis and disinformation that gets circulated and takes root and divides us. So if I were to wave my magic wand, I would have us all actually believe in, in reality. Even if we have different points of view about what we do about it, at least we're starting from a foundation of truth. So Simple, you know, easy stuff yeah. like that. That's what I'm focused on. Well, it's funny you should say that because I remember years ago seeing Daniel Patrick Moynihan telling somebody testifying before the Senate Budget Committee that, you know, you have a right to your own opinion, but not your own set of facts. Yeah. And yet that seems to be the world that we traffic in. And when you think about from a political standpoint, I loved your article in, or your column in uh, the Columbia Journalism Review shortly before the presidential election. You gave some advice to the media on how to cover the race, reminding them that problems at polling places are not failures. To manage expectations, they needed to be careful about their language on things like calling the race. 
and preparing for possible shift from one candidate to another as ballots were counted. And that last one seems almost prophetic in terms of what we've seen play out. How did the media do in covering this election and in covering the, the vote tally afterwards? Actually, not bad. I mean, you really didn't need a crystal ball to imagine or foresee what would happen. You know, this is, again, coming back to evidence-based reality. You know, we knew that Americans were going to be voting in record numbers by mail. We knew state by state how those ballots were going to be counted. For instance, in Ohio, the mail-in ballots were counted first, followed by the in-person ballots. So you saw and, and we know that Democrats, by and large, vote more by mail than Republicans. So in Ohio, we saw, you know, originally a lead for Biden, and then it flipped to Trump. And, and, and then in Pennsylvania, where you had the opposite, the mail-in ballots counted later, we saw a flip in the other direction. So, you know, our goal at the Aspen Institute, and, and that, by the way, that column in the Columbia Journalism Review was the culmination of a series of briefings and meetings we had with news media and social media. And I'm happy to say that I think mostly the news media acquitted themselves pretty well. They, were, they did prepare the public. The whole point was prepare the public for what would happen. You know, we are so used to, with the rare exception of 2020, we're used to waking up, if not going to sleep, at least waking up the morning after the election and knowing who the president-elect is. Mm-hmm. And we did need to make sure that news organizations prepared the public that that would likely not be the case and that there might be disputes. And as we see, we're several weeks after the election now and those disputes are ongoing. But I, I would say, generally speaking, I'm, I'm really pleased with how most media did manage to prepare the public quite well. I also thought it was interesting that they were able to find, you know, really smart thoughtful public servants, you know, even come forward in a lot of these states. Gary and I talked about like in Georgia, there's this guy, Gabriel Sterling, who was in charge of the vote count and voting security in the state of Georgia. He was very methodical, sort of going step by step. And what was great is that the journalists kind of stayed with him. And let's make sure that all those points that were in that Columbia Journalism Review article were kind of a a smart pathway for them to follow. I think one of the great takeaways, inspiring takeaways, despite everything coming out of these elections is how resilient our voting and counting system is and how many extraordinary public servants there are in, in both parties who are committed to this incredibly important instrument of democracy. It really has been, you know, notwithstanding those that would seek to undermine the system, it's just been extraordinary and, and inspiring. And I think for many people have reignited trust in the system, which is exactly what we would hope to happen. I, I just quick thing, Mike, is it, we both know Micho Spring, who's had a corporate at, yes. at Weber Shanwick. And I was talking to her about the election results, and she's a Cuban immigrant. And she said to me, I said, what's your reaction to the election? And she said, I am proud to live in a country where we yeah. can do this. Yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. In the middle of all this craziness. And right. that was kind of moving to me. To, to hear well, that. and it also undergirds what I think is really important and maybe different as we or in the still in this state of not complete transition is the importance of institutions. And, you know, as, as kind of the, the pillar of, of what our democracy is all about. And uh, to respect that is, is important. 
Now, Vivian, one of the things that I also read is that you had suggested that the media retire the phrase election day, given relatively new developments such as mail-in voting, early voting. I voted absentee here in, in South Carolina while I was working in Canada. But changes like that seem fine to help set voter expectations. But news is also about ratings and readers and, 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 and viewers. And I can remember my early start in politics was actually working with CBS News ages ago to help them call elections election night. Will media organizations in the future be able to resist the dramatic poll-driven horse race nature of election coverage? Oh gosh, well, there's a, there's there's a lot to talk about in that statement. Um, I, I will say just on, in reference to the to election day, the the you know in, in November third, you know it it's obviously changes each year. November third, you know, was still an incredibly relevant day because it is the day, it was the day that the polls closed. So that is still going to matter because you know many states like Florida who are able to turn their vote counts around very quickly, you know, you will know, you know, we expected, and in fact, we did know, generally speaking, the Florida results within hours. So, you know, the, the, the television networks can still have put on their big show. My point was the so-called countdown to election day, which right. was nonsense and it's an anachronism. In some states, people started voting in the middle of September and yeah. more votes came in before November 3rd than on November 3rd. And so the idea that, you know, we're counting down to election day was just ridiculous. And, and, and you know, besides it being inaccurate, my, my concern about it is it appeared to uh, inadvertently make votes cast on November 3rd more worthy than votes cast prior. And my concern is that would play into some of the conspiracy theories about mail-in voting, and in fact, that we continue to see that play out. So that's why it's so important. I think that is so correct. And of course, that is exactly, as you say, what happened post the election, that there were some ballots that were more worthy than others. And, and of course, that runs contradictory to this phrase that you said earlier about evidence-based reality, which I love. But right now, I'd like to turn this conversation back to me. Uh, that, that, um, as Mike knows, you know, I like to remind our listeners every week that in college, I was an English literature major. And it makes me sound, you know, more snooty, that kind of thing. <laughs> but one of the authors I studied, Jonathan Swift, wrote several hundred years ago that falsehoods fly and truth comes limping after it. That's probably more true today than ever. Is there any way, given that false things are generally more interesting than true things, that fact-checking, labeling can make a difference when it comes to the misinformation and disinformation that you talked about? Well, you know, let's first start with that, you know, with that adage, which was uttered at a time when this, this incredibly powerful machine that enables, enabled those falsehoods to fly didn't exist. And I'm talking about social media. Yep. So, you know, it was ever thus, you know, people grasp onto ridiculous conspiracy theories. They get excited about things that are too good to be true because they're not. But what we have now is an incredible machine in the form mostly of Facebook 
that rewards posts that make us feel something, that, feel that, good, that yeah. make us outraged or make us excited. Those posts tend to take root and fly around the, the world at, at tremendous scale and at warp speed. So it's basically taking a fundamental human instinct that's been around forever, but, but you know, weaponizing it is really what we're talking about. And that's what's so disturbing. You know, the platforms are on many levels taking this seriously. We've seen a lot of improvements that happened around the election and really encouraged by that. I'm in conversation with them and there's a lot of good people at the platforms that really care deeply and, and, and want to reduce this, this level of misinformation. But the platforms are so large, it's really hard to make that happen. As for fact-checking, the research here is sort of, you know, still in progress is what it is that, what will, what will people listen to that might cause them to slow down or rethink what they're reading yeah. and, and call it into question? Yeah. Well, you know, you're mentioning that reminds me of conversations I used to have when I was at GE with my NBC News colleagues. You know, Brokaw and Brian Williams and that gang, always used to talk about the common experience that the nightly news created for Americans, right? That we were mostly getting the same information or slight variations of it. And it created a set of agreed upon facts about the issues. Uh, you had the nightly news, you had the morning newspaper. You know, I worked for an afternoon newspaper, you know, that kind of thing. The diversification of media platforms was supposed to be the great liberator of information. Given what you, you see with Facebook particularly and with others, is it possible to rein this all in? It seems to me to have so many tentacles that the best we can do is just manage it rather than uh, cure it. I don't necessarily see the, see the news ecosystem in a binary way in terms of, you know, the, the good old days, so to speak, you know, of yep. which I was a part two versus this sort of plethora of platforms. I mean, the good old days had its problems too, you know, by everybody watching, you know, 30 minutes of the nightly news in the morning, you know, we were getting a lot of information and it was based on reality, but it also left out the stories and lived experiences of, of many people around the world. It was in some ways a, you know, looking at the world through a straw. So I don't know that I would want to go back to that. I think the kind of diversity of information and the breadth and scope of information and perspectives that the internet and the platforms enable is a really powerful good. If we can control <laughs> the mis and disinformation, <laughs> it's really not that simple. And, and even in terms of, you know, wanting to control mis and disinformation, even that is a risky proposition because, you know, it is a very fine line between shutting down false or harmful information and suppressing free expression. A very, very fine line. And we don't want to tip over into suppressing free expression. What I'm saying is I wish there was some sort of perfect model, but there's not. This is really complicated stuff that's going to take generations for us to sort through. Yeah. Like generational music, right? It's like every new music the parents feel threatened by. And we somehow socially recalibrate. And I think the same thing probably happened with radio, happened with television. And then, you know, with social media, although albeit that online is, is, is more diffuse, it's clearly there are many more avenues and channels to get information and disinformation. Mm -hmm. And the, I guess the challenge becomes, you know, to what extent are people able 
and willing to try and do a little bit more work to understand where's wheat and where's chaff, where's the truth yeah. and where are those things that aren't truthful. And to that end, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. So what I'm curious about is, so Facebook has committed itself to an oversight. What kind of promise does that hold? Is that going to have the ability to rein some of this in or provide directionally how people should navigate these spaces? Well, we don't know yet because they haven't offered any rulings yet, but maybe I could just back up and explain. <laughs> Facebook ha has appointed a, an oversight board comprised of 30 people from around the world who are all experts in some aspect of either journalism or free expression or the First Amendment, what have you. These are very, very accomplished people. And the idea is that they will be able to act independently of Facebook's commercial interests to opine on cases that then might set a precedent which Facebook has agreed to be binding. So that's the good news. How mm -hmm. the problem is their scope, at least for now, is incredibly narrow. They can only rule, so to speak, on a case where somebody's post on Facebook has been taken down by Facebook and that the person who wrote the post has gone through a series of appeals with Facebook to no avail. They can then appeal to the Facebook oversight board who can rule on that specific case and get that reinstated. So that is a very, very narrow set of circumstances. It's a start. And also they have not yet they haven't taken any cases yet, or they haven't at least publicly commented on any cases yet. Wasn't there also an, another group independent of them yeah. that, that, that is setting up to try and review? What do you know of that? So there's another group of people, they're calling themselves the real Facebook Oversight Board. <laughs> it has nothing to do with Facebook. They are anti-Facebook activists. I, I, and I, I mean that, I mean, these are serious people. They are researchers yeah. and people that, you know, they are frustrated by what they're seeing. They feel like the Oversight Board, you know, will not go far enough. So they are, are sort of doing their own review of cases and they will also offer potentially alternative perspectives to the Facebook Oversight Board, which again, has not made any public rulings yet. So this all remains to be seen. And you were on a webinar recently with Alan Miller, who's a former LA Times uh, investigative reporter, founder of the News Literacy Project, which I actually intersected a bit when I was at Person Marsteller. Do you think news literacy projects for the general public and for students can make a material difference in this battle against misinformation and disinformation or have, or, or as some people have described it, uh, truth decay? Yeah, I, I do, but it is not a short-term proposition. I'm very familiar with the News Literacy Project. I was actually their founding chair. It's been years now since I've been on the board. I'm a great admirer and friend of Alan. And I think what he's doing, you know, which was prescient, it was before we even saw the kind of epidemics of misinformation that, that have taken root over the last you know, six, seven years. And so he was you know, well positioned. I think news literacy and media literacy, or really what you might wanna broadly call civics education, the, the notion that that be reintroduced in the education system, I think is incredibly important and incredibly powerful, but it is not a short-term solution. This is about trying to change the framework 
for kids as they come into adulthood in the way that they think about the you know mechanisms of democracy, which of course very much includes um, the First Amendment and journalism. So it's hugely important, but it is part of what needs to be an entire portfolio of remedies that will hopefully reset the way we think about news and information in this country. So what's next on tap for the Aspen Institute in the in this media space? So yeah, I've, so my focus at Aspen is on the media space. Well, we're, we're doing a lot, but one area of focus that we're going to be particularly taking on in a big way is, you know, now that we, you know, eventually January 20th will come, you know, President-elect Biden will be sworn into office and this nonsense about, you know, these fictitious fraudulent counts will will not go away, but hopefully it'll recede into the background. And then we need to face what is probably an even more significant mis and disinformation um, environment. And that is around COVID-19 and particularly around vaccinations. I am mm. particularly concerned about the anti-vax mm-hmm. movement, which is broad, deep, global, and very sophisticated. And, you know, this is literally a matter of life and death. And so we will be looking at the so-called infodemic, you know, the mis and disinformation and working with partners on how to make sure that people, you know, in this country and around the world can trust the science and the advice that they're being given and and will adopt a vaccine when it's uh, safe to do so. What is it about the human psyche that we mistrust science? You know, I wish I could tell you. I have <laughs> no idea. That is so above my pay grade and, 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 and mental ability to understand why people cannot believe or trust what, is, what they see with their own two eyes. Well, it's because science has been bent so much recently. My, you know, one of the reasons, there's many, many more uh, about how the human brain works and all of that. But it's been bent to people's selfish purposes so much recently, whether it's climate change, whether it's basic economics on the economic divide in this country. It's been misused, science misused, not real science, unfortunately. It's something Mike Quackery? and I- Quackery? Quackery, yeah. yeah. There we go. <laughs> that would be a good word for it. And Mike and I have talked about this. And I actually, you know, I still teach or I teach at a communication school and we just need to do more about communicating science and, and accurately and persuasively. And, and to your point, Vivian, I was running along the river here in Boston yesterday, and I saw a little sign somebody had put up saying vaccines cause adults. So, <laughs> <laughs> so somebody has beaten you to- I love to, that. Yeah, to the awesome. punch. But I, I think you, I'm really glad to hear that uh, Aspen is working on that issue because it's, as you say, going to be a matter of life and death to get not only these things distributed, but to get convinced people to take them. And there are a lot of people expressing, particularly on the Republican side, who people who are say they're Republicans and, and Democrats I've seen as well too, saying they won't they won't take the vaccine. Yeah. Well, listen, Vivian. This has been great. We really appreciate you being on the Crux. For for being our guest, you're going to be receiving a beautiful Crux t-shirt. <laughs> highly coveted. Highly coveted, along with a Crux coffee mug. And maybe you can put it next to some of your Emmys. <laughs> I'll put it right in the right in the middle in, in, in a place you. of honor. <laughs> <laughs>
Vivian Schiller from the Aspen Institute. They're doing fantastic work. I hope you all will follow them and particularly on the work that Vivian just outlined in 2021. So thanks again, Vivian. And thank thanks, you. Mike. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs>